Are you ready to learn? Because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information. Make sure and listen all the way to the end to get help and support. So let's start with the best audio experience. 10 years ago, when I invested on online project, uh, I usually expect to get $2 back after investing a dollar. Today, it's hard. It's hard because of competition, because of many other projects online. And today, marketers need to consider a new metric. It's called customer lifetime value. When you invest dollar and you uh, need to sell your customers many times, your customer can bring more uh, friends, uh, other clients, so you can get your $2 back or probably more. So I'm so excited to discuss this topic with Daniel McCarthy. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It, it's a big pleasure. I want to learn more about that. I know it's important to consider lifetime value. Be before we start, just tell more about yourself, experience, uh, background, and why you decided to share with us about this topic. Yes, uh, uh, I'm an assistant professor of marketing at Emory University. Uh, I basically spend most of my time thinking about topics like customer lifetime value, predicting what customers will do in the future, and uh, how it rolls up to uh, help us understand how well companies are doing as a whole. So you know, it's kind of been top of mind from a research perspective. Uh, I teach a course called Customer Lifetime Valuation. Literally, the course is called CLV. So um, you know, we kind of go through all the nuts and bolts of moving from transactional data to predicting what customers will do, um, how we can think about uh, defining some of these measures properly, and uh, you know, all of those other details that you really need to think about uh, to actually get a correct customer lifetime value, such as you know, what costs do you include? You know, how do we think about attribution and things like that? So, um, yes, yeah, so, uh, that's the teaching cap. And then the third cap is uh, as an entrepreneur. So I have co-founded a couple businesses. Uh, the first business was called Zodiac. Uh, Zodiac was a predictive analytics software as a service MarTech firm. And uh, we basically work with uh, companies, ingested all their transactional CRM data, uh, ran a series of predictive models to predict what the customers will purchase in the future, use that to infer customer lifetime value, you know, the probability they're going to come back over the next 6, 12, 24 months, what have you, and then use that sort of information to help the marketers at those firms uh, understand where they should be spending their marketing dollars. So the same sort of problems that you were uh, just describing a moment ago. Um, we grew it, sold it to Nike in March of 2018. And then um, this is uh, Pete Fader and myself. Pete Fader is a Wharton marketing professor who, um, who was my advisor while I was there. Um, and we took some of the proceeds to co-found a second company called Theta, uh, which uses very similar predictive models for customer behavior, but now we're using it to a large extent for more financial outcomes. So helping to understand the overall valuation of companies, helping to understand, you know, is this company's unit economics healthy or not? And uh, we'll, we'll kind of use that same sort of modeling uh, analysis to, to really help understand that. So. Yeah, so that company is called Theta. Um, you know, we've we've now kind of moved back into the marketing zodiac type use cases as well. So, um, so anyone who's kind of interested in exploring that, whether you're an investor or you know working uh, within the marketing department or uh, in, in some other department of the company, um, you know, I think that uh, you know, we could definitely be. We'd love to. We'd love to speak with you. I love your experience. Awesome. 
Okay, let's start from the basic question that I have in my mind. Uh, I found online that many businesses uh, have no documented content strategy. Uh, so they usually use generic methods, uh, replicate their competitors, uh, don't measure this uh, uh, customer lifetime value. Can you tell how to create this strategy, uh, marketing strategy uh, for paid marketing or SEO or any other channel considering lifetime value? Can you tell more about that? Well, I think uh, what you can do is to the extent that you know the, the channel that your customers came from, uh, mm -hmm. if you did have an accurate model for customer lifetime value, then you could be able to compare the cost that you had uh, you know, the amount of money that you spent to acquire the customer through that channel to how much you made from that customer after they were acquired. So we call the first thing customer acquisition cost. And then the second thing is post acquisition value and you know, just the value of that customer after you brought them in the door. And, uh, and then the idea would be you want to find the channels that are bringing in the best customers. And so, you know, you can kind of use that framework to understand you know, what is my marketing return on investment. And then uh, through that, and typically, you know, we would recommend doing that in conjunction with uh, A-B testing, experimenting, uh, but that can really help you understand, um, you know, what channels are making you the most money. And then, you know, in the next period, just try to uh, kind of put more of your budget in those, those better performing channels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree with that, uh, except one thing, uh, you need to understand the channel. For example, if uh, I have some clients on Instagram, but I'm so bad with that. For me, it's hard to compete my skills about Instagram with my wife because she can spend the whole day, you know, on Instagram to check out feed. I can't. For me, it's boring. It's better to spend time on LinkedIn. So uh, I, I think it's important to understand the channel or have resources. You can delegate the task to someone who is familiar with a specific channel, but it's better to know how to grow on specific channel because it's not only about uh, covering channel. It's more about to understand the audience on specific channel to create content that are related to specific channel. For example, on Facebook, uh, people have no buying mood. They're not ready to buy. So you can change this buying mood uh, by sharing value, helping them, supporting them. And uh, when they are ready, so you can uh, lead them in the top funnel to sell. Uh, can you tell about the metric, uh, how to calculate, I mean, calculation, uh, customer lifetime value? Uh, let's imagine I'm using uh, paid marketing, Google ads, and uh, how, how to calculate what kind of uh, uh, value I can get back after investing uh, X amount of money. Yeah, I mean, well, the ability to uh, compute customer lifetime value, you know, after acquisition, hopefully that should be relatively straightforward. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, as long as you got that customer ID, you can kind of track their purchases over time. And then the hope is that you've got uh, visibility into all of the, the direct costs that went into generating that revenue. So fulfillment expenses, credit card payment processing, um, obviously direct labor, direct materials, that sort of a thing. Um, and then the only other kind of open variable is uh, if you had spent additional marketing dollars to to generate the repeat orders. Yeah, but the idea would be, let's take into account all that stuff. You know that kind of when you get those those orders, you're going to have to be spending that money each time you do so. Um, so you basically kind of get that stream of future contribution profits, and that can give you 
you know, what the post acquisition will, will be when you account for the time value of money properly. So, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so it's really just kind of a process of comparing that to what you spent up front. Um, you know, to your point, I think some channels may seem like they're underperforming, um, but it could be because of something that the company is is doing suboptimally. Like maybe the the Instagram strategy is just no good. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, so if you had someone like your wife, you know, kind of at the helm, um, you know, maybe she could do a much better job with it. There, it, it can be helpful to, to look not only at your return on investment, but also to the extent that you have norms for how good those channels can be for, for your peers. Then if you are uh, underperforming your peers, that can be an indication that uh, you're leaving money on the table. And, uh, and if you were to bring in someone who you know, can kind of up your game on, on the content side or whatever, you know, that you could kind of improve the, the return on that channel. So mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. I think there's this question of like, what is assumed when we compute those numbers? And there's an implicit assumption um, oftentimes of kind of a continuation of the status quo. You know, that if you were the one who was kind of at the helm, you know, kind of leading content strategy for the portfolio of channels that you uh, market through, that that's not going to fundamentally change. But as you'd expect, you know, if you were to bring in someone else, it could be that, um, that the, the returns change. And so I think that's why it can be really helpful to track uh, all of these numbers over time, that they're not static measures. You know, these are measures that will be dynamic. And uh, in cases like this, you know, if it is something that's observable, that's changing, um, then it's even easier to kind of incorporate that into your modeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you have extended experience. Uh by teaching people uh, in university, uh, in uh, different trainings. Can you tell how to transfer uh, the the right way educational uh, stuff or data uh, to others? Um, Let me explain why I'm asking about that. Uh, According to a few studies, um, uh, marketers uh, usually recommend a lot to their customers and only 40% of their recommendations are implemented. Most of them ignore because uh, businesses have no time, resources, or any other excuses, uh, you know, to implement uh, data. Uh, can you tell how to explain the right way that it's important or uh, to choose priorities or uh, choose the right data? For example, if you calculate for your customers uh, that we need to use uh, this data, you know, uh, return on investment, many other metrics, but how to explain to the customer that it's important to implement, to consider, and uh, don't ignore? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Yeah, I'll often say that to really make this sort of a pivot work, uh, you need buy-in from people higher up than you. And um, obviously, unless you're the CEO of the company, <laughs> if you're the CEO yeah. of the company, then you can kind of just push it on down. But uh, they're so busy. <laughs> but yeah, you need cultural change, and uh, mm-hmm. and if you don't have buy-in from you know from the C-suite, then it can be very hard to kind of get something like this going. Because there are a few things that you need to to do to really make it work. You know, you need the right data, you need the right measures, and then you need the right predictive models, and then you need the ability to take um, action on the results. And um, and each of those things, it's not like you can kind of wake up one day and say, you know, that's the right way to do it. So I'm just going to kind of snap my finger and make it happen. You know, typically you, you need to invest in data acquisition. You need to invest in instrumentation on the other side to, to take action. And 
and inevitably, you know, there's going to be some period of learning where you're probably not going to be making quite as much money, you know, because you're going to have to be making these investments. So, um, yeah, so there's that question, how, how do you get the buy-in? And uh, all the, th the stuff that I've been doing on customer-based corporate valuation has been to, to help get investors uh, keying in on all this. And so we're increasingly seeing the investment community obsessing over CAC, obsessing over, well, why did you miss your subscriber numbers? You know, it's not just about, you know, revenue and profit, but it's about, you know, marketing productivity, you know, how much you spent on ad spend and how many customers you brought in, um, how, how often they're repeating, you know, what's happening with my churn rate. And uh, obviously, you know, we kind of elevate it one level further to kind of do it in a principled way. But um, if you have the investors uh, kind of breathing down the neck of the CEO and the CFO, it's going to force the CEO and the CFO to have to start caring about this stuff. So, so I think that that is one big uh, vector you know, that can help uh, enable change. I think if you're if you're a company that has not been subjected to that yet, you know, you haven't had your investors kind of pushing you around about this stuff. Um, I think that the people within the organization can point to other examples where that has happened so that hopefully, even if you haven't, you know, experienced it yourself, you can still vicariously learn and see the writing is on the wall that, uh, even if it hasn't happened to you yet, it, it will. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think that, that, that's been a really interesting development over the past couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. I mentioned Pete Fader. Yeah, he, yeah, he's been also kind of spearheading this customer centricity movement. And, um, and the idea behind customer centricity is I think a growing number of companies are realizing that you know, it's kind of table stakes to just have great product and focus on product. You, know, you also really need to you know, have a great customer experience and, you know, have something that'll keep people coming back. And that can be, that can be more than just product uh, in isolation. And so, um, and it's also, it's not just customer lifetime value calculations. You know, it's something that I think is, is very intuitively appealing. And he's found that, and I've, I've, I've found it as well as, as I've started to kind of uh, teach that stuff too. Um, it's the sort of stuff that can kind of get the CEO and the CFO on board maybe more so the CEO. Um, you know, I think the CFO can often be a bit more, you know, just purely dollars and cents. Um, but you know, I think there's, you know, a couple of different hooks like that that can really help, um, you know, just catalyze that sort of uh, cultural transformation that's required to really help get the budget to the, the marketing department to be able to kind of make some of these changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. Valuable. Uh, we have a bunch of comments from Melinda Wells. Uh, probably she spoke on TEDx. I can see it uh, on her avatar. <laughs> That's great. And I, li I like the, the last quote, marketing to the right customer is significant. Yeah, yeah we have, uh, I know another quote, uh, if you sell to anyone, you sell to nobody. So it's better to find your customer. And you mentioned, uh, about acquiring the right data can you tell how to collect the right data because you know uh, it's a big issue with my customers with many others they usually use generic data 
from online studies, tools, uh, uh, they analyze competitors, but competitors might have their strong side, their unique selling proposition. It's quite different. Even two companies can sell the same product. Uh, I don't know, let's imagine iPhone, they sell iPhones, but uh, they have different approaches to sell iPhones, uh, uh, probably delivery, any other stuff. Uh, it's not only about the price. Can you tell how to collect the right data today uh, according to your experience? Yeah, I mean, step one is certainly making sure your transactional data is clean and uh, and the match rate is high. So the match rate is the proportion of transactions that you can uh, tie back to specific customer identifiers. So that's one that um, you, you better have a clean, nice, clean transaction log. Uh, so that's, uh, that, that's really helpful. Um, one thing, yeah, companies will often migrate from one one system to another. Those system migrations can be very disruptive for the transaction log. So, yeah, especially around um, systems migrations, to the extent that you can be able to kind of tie the transaction logs together, that is so helpful. Um, the next level is really you know, how you can kind of enrich that with other data. And um, I'm a big first-party data person. I think that um, third-party data coming from companies like Axiom and Experian, it sounds really nice, it's very sexy, but um, mm -hmm. oftentimes has kind of limited signal. You know, we just have, have found that it has relatively low explanatory power. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of a big proponent of um, finding ways to, to, to get a lot of good first-party data. Um, CDPs are uh, becoming increasingly popular. There's a number of good ones out there. Uh, but again, the idea behind the CDP is uh, in addition to the transaction data, you've got the service touch points. You know, you've got um, you know, some of your cu customers might be calling in. Um, you you want to be able to to take all of that data and be able to tie it back to specific customers. Um, another one's profitability data. It's not something that typically is readily available, uh, but to the extent that uh, your purchases have the the products that are bought by the customers, then if you know the you know the contribution profitability of um, of those products, and then certainly all of that can be uh, done at the transaction level, as opposed to having to do some sort of peanut butter spread contribution margin haircut thing. You know that uh, oftentimes is what you would otherwise have to do. Um, fulfillment data. You know, there's another one that oftentimes it may be somewhat disconnected from um, from the transaction log. Uh, but ideally, you would want to also know, you know, how those uh, how those costs are are linked to specific purchases, so that you can uh, just get a, a cleaner read on the profit of a transaction. Returns mm -hmm. is another. Yeah, I mean, I could kind of keep going on. <laughs> um, returns are not. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, they're handled in a variety of different ways. Uh, sometimes you don't know the customer that you know, that was returning the product. If, if you do, um, there are many times where companies won't know the, the specific purchase that um, whose products are being returned. Uh, that can be extremely important information. Again, you know, for one, it's to get the profitability right at the transaction level, but it's also really useful information when you think about starting to model returns. You know, if, if you wanted to actually have like a predictive model for returns at the time of purchase. Um, then if you don't have returns data linked to purchase data, you, know, you can't really do that very accurately. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so just, I'd say it's really um, a good CDP, a good, a good data system can help 
um, you know, kind of tie all that back together. I guess the final one I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention is all the stuff that happens before acquisition. You know, so it's not that you don't know anything. Uh, I think especially in B2B settings, it tends to be a little bit better uh, because um, you know, they may have come to your website, they may have submitted an information request. You know, at some point they become a marketing qualified lead. At some point they graduate to being a sales qualified lead. You may have had conversations. Those conversations might've been with specific employees. You wanna know, you know which were the employees who, who, you know, who, who touched that customer. Uh, and then in theory, you, know, you can start to think about attribution, like maybe some of your employees are better at bringing in better customers. Maybe some of your employees are more skilled at converting prospects to, you know, to, to, to adopt. Um, so again, just being able to kind of link that back to specific customers is just going to be tremendously valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Let's talk about another aspect. Once I spoke, uh, with, uh, an expert uh, in data collecting and uh, she mentioned to me uh, that uh, when you get more than more data than you need um, it hurts you know so uh, it's like over data uh, and um, uh, a few times i highlighted some points on linkedin that overlearning hurts so uh, i'm not against overlearning but uh, i think people often overlearn without uh, doing something for example if you learn you can forget for a few days about new skills i can forget for a few hours you know anything uh, because uh, i know that uh, when you learn and implement you can analyze what actually works for you uh, you can find through experience and it's the way to learn as well because uh, learning through experience is better than just uh, to read a lot of books and do nothing uh, and um, uh, i think in data collecting we forget about intuition i remember one interesting meeting uh, with jeff bezos uh, I don't remember exactly who shared this meeting, but uh, uh, Jeff Bezos got a lot of data about uh, a new product and he replied, guys, nobody knows what actually works. Uh, we need to try. We need to test. We need to adapt. Uh, we need mm -hmm. to launch a uh, raw product, you know, uh, then we can analyze and improve it. It's like intuition. It's not about data. Can you tell about finding the balance between uh, collecting data, uh, not over collecting, and uh, intuition because uh, sometimes uh, you can feel, uh, uh, you can understand the customers, you can feel them by heart, not by logic. So uh, your insights about that? Yeah, I, I think intuition can help inform the experiments to run. Um, I think without this data, you, you know, oftentimes you're, you're flying blind. Like you, you wouldn't be able to run the experiment because you wouldn't have the X variables to, to go into the model, you know. But I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think it, it also, it, it dovetails with this broader, um, it's both a, a pro and a con that CLV is, is a high level measure. And uh, I think sometimes the high level nature of the measure makes it, hard for some marketers to know exactly what to do with it, you know? So, yeah, so for me, you know, I, I think, you know, there's that, again, just to, to kind of keep throwing out the quotes. Um, I think it was Einstein who said a, a problem well-specified is a problem half-solved. And I think overlearning is, what it can do is it can, it can lead to, to less specification because you're focusing on other things as opposed to like very specifically trying to answer specific questions. So. So certainly I agree with that sentiment. 
Um, in some sense, I think, you know, I, I tend to just, one thing that I, I'm laser focused on is getting an accurate CLV. Yeah, I think if you don't have a really good, clean read on the value of your customers, then you know, it's just very hard to, to steer your company in the right direction. So a lot of those data sources I mentioned, we immediately have this use case, like I know exactly what I'm gonna do with it, you know, because we can just kind of bake it into a more refined estimate of, of transaction, uh, transaction level profitability, you know, which will lead to more accurate uh, estimates of lifetime value. Um, yeah. I'm a big experimenter. You know, I think that experimentation is helpful and, uh, and an experimentation platform or something that can allow you to run cheap randomized experiments um, can be really valuable in terms of allowing you to uh, understand the, the causal effect of certain actions that you might be considering on customers. Um, but yeah, it, it goes back to that, that point that you know, to be able to run the experiment, you need the requisite data and you need the ability to act on that thing. And, and without those two things, you really can't, can't do a whole lot with it, you know? So, um, yeah, so I'm, I, I'm kind of a big advocate of, of running those experiments and then looking at the, uh, the impact that those things have on lifetime value. Yeah, I think that that, you know, in general is relatively simple. It's not that complicated. Um, and, uh, and it's directly telling you, you know, this is the, the return on investment of that action. You know, so I mm -hmm. think that it's a nice, clean measure, hopefully not too prone to, to over analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got it. Valuable. Uh, we have the question from Melinda. Um, can you take a little bit about customer activation? How do we hook the customer to buy? So can you provide insights about that? Yeah. I mean, customer moving someone from prospect to customer is, um, yeah, that's, I, I teach a whole lecture on customer acquisition strategies. Uh, and so one way that I'll conceptualize it is through, um, you know, through a funnel. You know, I'm a big fan of layer cakes where the, the highest level of the layer is the total applicable market. You know, that you kind of have the total number of people who could potentially adopt. And then you kind of successively kind of work your way down to the people who uh, are aware you know, are interested in you, you know, have some intent to purchase and then eventually uh, end up acquiring. Um, and so I think being able to first, I think you, you really need to, to do proper survey work regularly over time, both about yourself and about your, your main competitors uh, to be able to kind of get proxies for, you know, your TAM, your SAM, number aware, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, just to be able to identify where you're weak and what, what the choke point is that may be uh, holding back customer uh, adoption. And oftentimes it can be the case that um, companies are very good at, at some, some part, they're good in some part of the funnel, but they're not so good at other parts of the funnel, but they're just not even aware of that. And so, um, so they're not acquiring as many customers, but really it's that they had this one specific choke point. And if they really, you know, kind of leaned in on that thing, suddenly they have all these people kind of flowing through the funnel uh, very, very efficiently. So, so I'm not sure there's a one size fits all answer to, you know, to, to the, the activation strategy that works the best. I think it really is, you know, kind of a byproduct of, of running that survey work and then saying, where are we weak? And, uh, and then given that, I think we can, we can, we can get a lot more specific about exactly what sort of actions we can consider to, to help unclog that, that part of the, 
that part of the pipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, acquiring a new customer uh, costs five times more than retaining uh, old customer. Uh, can you tell about retaining? For example, if I get data that uh, my customer uh, needs uh, more support, but uh, many companies have limited resources, and um, I personally uh, have this issue. Uh, and I found, for example, if uh, uh, I have some issue on LinkedIn, it's hard to achieve support. You need to write a mail and wait for a few days to get uh, something back. Um, and um, it's annoying. It's annoying for many customers. Can uh, I know that uh, companies are trying to use AI tools, but uh, uh, most of the time they uh, reply some generic stuff without uh, real help. So can you tell how to decide these problems if you have limited resources? For example, okay, uh, LinkedIn can hire plus 10,000 more people but the business model uh, will not be profitable yeah so they can't uh, earn money uh, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, customers need it they need customer support they need to get uh, this attention can you tell what to do uh, with limited resources but when you have a lot of customers and you need to provide help to them mm-hmm. yeah it's a, it's an important question um i think it's kind of like t- two dimensions to it I think the first is um, acknowledging and embracing the fact that some customers are needier than other customers. They just need more and maybe they're just structurally less profitable. Like they're the people who always call up to customer service and just hog the lines or they're the ones who for the shoe company, they're the ones who always get 20 pairs of shoes and then keep one and return the other 19 and you offer free shipping and they just <laughs> you're just eating it big time on uh, on those customers others you know they're like me you know i'm i'm super lazy i tend to buy at list price i don't tend to return very much um so i'm, I'm probably i'm probably leaving money on the table um but good for the company <laughs> good for the companies <laughs> that i buy at so i think you know when you when we quote those figures about you know customers being it's it's five times less costly you know, to to retain than to than to acquire. That five x figure is it's an average of people who are extremely expensive and not expensive at all. And um, I think one thing that it can motivate then is to to try and find ways to limit losses from the super needy, especially if they're not bringing in a whole lot of value at the end of the day. You know so. You know, one thing that some companies have done, for example, is they'll offer the free shipping, but they have in the fine print that if you abuse their return policy, they're not going to offer you free returns. And so, um, so that could be mm-hmm. one thing that you can do where you're still able to say, you know, free shipping, free returns, but, you know, you're, you're not losing a ton of money on these people who, you know, buy the 20 and, and return 19. And what, it, what a lot of work has shown is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the Pareto principle. You know, it's basically you know, the 80-20 rule. Well, the 80-20 rule definitely holds for, for returns, that most of the, the losses that companies incur on returns are from a very small proportion of people. Um, so I think yeah, that's kind of a microcosm of, you know, I think, what can be done to help you know, limit the losses uh, while still preserving the vast majority of 
uh, of sales volume that might be coming in. Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's kind of one example. Um, the other thing I would mention is that again, it kind of goes back to experiments. You can have some customers that are very responsive to you know to to customer service. You maybe they're they're going to be much more prone to staying, you know, because you're offering them that whatever that benefit might be. Uh, whereas others, you know, they might have stayed anyways. You know, I mean, if they're really long-term loyal customers, there's a question: Does that mean that you want to dole out a whole bunch of freebies to them, or are they so good that you really don't need to spend money on them? You know, they're just going to kind of keep coming back anyways, and so you don't want to waste your money. Um, and that's exactly where you want to run experiments. You know, I think that it's yeah. really hard to say in advance, like you want to spend a lot of money on the best customers or you don't want to spend any money on the best customers. You know, run an experiment and then use that experiment to uh, estimate the, the return on investment associated with being liberal with them versus not. And, uh, and a well-designed experiment will give you a valid answer to that question. Um, so I would use that as kind of the guiding principle. And then if you do have a limited budget, you know, if you've got a hundred bucks to spend, then this will give you the ability to to spend that a hundred dollars the most productively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, focus in the scheme. Agree with that. Love it. Okay, Daniel, I have the question about common mistakes. Can you list uh, common mistakes that companies still do? And your uh, any tips how to find much better way uh, by calculating or uh, measuring uh, lifetime value? Well, one common thing is um, people will treat customer lifetime value as a trophy measure and they'll mm -hmm. treat it as marketing material and they'll want it to be big and they'll want CAC to be small. And so they'll kind of do whatever it takes to kind of make good numbers look good and you make the CAC numbers look, look low. Um, don't cheat yourself. You know, the big loser when you do that is you. And I think that, yeah, I understand. Like we all, we all want to make our figures look good for investors. But the problem is, as soon as you start lying to yourself, yeah, you know, there's really there's no way out. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you actually want this to be useful and to be a proper measure of return on investment, you need to be honest about what are my expenses, what is truly variable, you know, um, and and at least internally, you maybe. The numbers that you report to to the investment community is coming from a different set of books, but you need to have that that internal set of books where you're actually looking at these figures for what they should be, not not what you aspirationally want want them to be for, for you know for the investment community. So I think yeah, that that's one. It just shows up time and time again. I'll look at these company dis these company disclosures, and, and it's atrocious some of the stuff that they put in there. Um, Mm -hmm. So now there are a lot of people who, you know, they genuinely are trying to, to kind of do it the right way, but they just, you know, they kind of, there's just a lot of things that can kind of trip you up. Um, I think one of them is obviously using the wrong predictive model. You know, I think that inevitably um, it could be just kind of that, that traditional CLV formula that you'll learn in marketing 101, you know, where you kind of take your margin while alive times your return, you know, your, um, R divided by one minus I plus R, you know, your retention rate divided by, you know, one minus your discount rate plus, plus your, your retention rate. And that's just a terrible formula. You know, if you actually look at how well that model predicts what your customers are going to do, it predicts terribly. So I think 
the second thing for people who do genuinely want to get it right, um, treat customer like lifetime value is what it is, that it is a, a sparse prediction problem, you know, where you're trying to get, ideally what you're trying to get is individual level estimate of the net present value of a customer. And, um, and to the extent that you're doing a prediction, you want to see how well you predict. And so there's a whole suite of validations that we'll always do with prediction problems that sometimes are not done with CLV. Um, so, you know, I think that that, that's kind of another big one. I could spend five hours about, you know, the, the pitfalls that people go through and when, when kind of doing these CLV calculations. But uh, yeah, I think that those were mm -hmm. two of the ones that kind of immediately come to mind. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, I have the question about, uh, can you tell, uh, let's imagine you started from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills. What will you do today to learn more about customer lifetime value? Uh, well, I'm gonna kind of, this will be somewhat self-promotional, but um, again, I teach a course on customer lifetime value. Mm -hmm. uh, so so certainly you know, to the extent that I can be helpful in that journey, um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be. Uh, so if you wanted to sign up for the class or you know, ask for materials, yeah, I'd be more than happy to share. Um, I think there's other, uh, there's other material that's quite accessible um, that, that I'd be happy to recommend. Yeah, I'm not sure I can just kind of rattle them off uh, right now, but you know, certainly there's kind of a list of resources that when people email me saying, you know, they want to learn more about this stuff, yeah, I've got a set of resources that I'll, I'll send over to them. So, um, yeah, so virtually all of it's free. You know, there's no cost associated mm -hmm. with it. And I'd be, I'd be more than happy to share that. Um, I, I do think that, and again, it, it's kind of unfortunate, but I, I do feel that a lot of what's out there is of questionable quality. You know, so I think that, um, you know, there's kind of this, uh, I think it's Hammurabi's code that, you know, that the first rule is to do no harm. And um, so I'm a little hesitant to, to recommend courses. There's not a whole lot of courses that are out there that really do it right. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, I, I think, you know, case by case basis, but you're happy to help kind of think through any other courses that, 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 that those people may be considering. But I think a lot of it is, is not great. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, yeah, so I, I kind of start there. And then, yeah, I think, you know, to some degree, it also is kind of a, a, a function of the focus of the person. Like, are they kind of coming at it more from a marketing perspective? Are they coming at more, I'm, I'm a potential investor who's looking at CLV, you know, as kind of a, a diagnostic measure of the health of the companies I may invest in. Um, the sort of resources that could be most useful for the one group might be different from the others because the marketers are going to be, they're going to get a lot more value from the more tactical, how do we experiment, you know, how do we think about attribution and things like that. Uh, whereas the investors, they may be more interested in, you know, let's really nail down like the cost accounting. You know, how, how can this really help, help us inform a view as to what path to profitability is. And, um, and so inevitably there's a lot that kind of overlaps between those two, uh, two, two ways of looking at the world. But, um, you know, there's kind of enough non-overlappingness that, um, yeah, I think it may also just be, you know, kind of person specific. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice. Uh, yeah. By the way, you can share your course on private chat. I'll share with, uh, in the podcast episode, guys, you can find the link to the course. Uh, I highly recommend to learn more about the that because it's very important today 
to uh, to calculate this data to know customer lifetime value because digital marketing is huge we have a lot of competitors uh, 1.8 billion websites online that want to get traffic uh, want to get sales so you need to compete with them uh, it's better to create the right strategy to calculate this data to know your customer lifetime value i uh, love this metric i highly recommend it daniel tell our audience the best way how to reach out to you to learn more about you follow you yeah so i've got uh and maybe i'll put this to so the private chat then everyone can can see yeah. what's in there uh, yes yeah, uh, so. yeah i'll share yeah it's just uh this feature yeah so right yes yeah, so i'd say um you can follow me on twitter at uh at d underscore uh, mccar um i talk about this stuff a lot there uh linkedin is i know you mentioned li liking linkedin a lot i also like linkedin a lot so um I'll post a lot there as well. Uh, so yeah, at least once every couple of days or so. <laughs> so, uh, so I just put a link into my, a link into my LinkedIn. Um, if you're interested in other resources, uh, the company that I co-founded Theta, uh, we have a number of really great kind of deep dives into um, public companies. And so yeah, if you're looking for uh, additional resources, uh, the blog at our website is just absolutely great. Now we have, we have, uh, I'd say that most recent analysis that we did was of Warby Parker and we've been following them very closely and, um, nice. and then hopefully today we'll, we'll have our new uh, analysis of Wayfair. You know, so they just reported Q3 earnings last week and we've done a, a really deep dive uh, into them, uh, that we're going to be sharing pretty soon. So, um, yes, yeah, so obviously. Awesome. You know, I'll probably be talking about that on my LinkedIn and Twitter, but um, yeah, might as well get it straight from the source. <laughs> nice, nice. Guys, you can find the link to Twitter and LinkedIn in the description below to Daniel. Follow him. You can see a lot of valuable insights. You can learn more about that. Uh, thanks for taking part, for listening, for watching us. Daniel, it's a big pleasure to get you on my show, to learn from you. I love all your insights. So welcome back anytime to share more valuable insights because you're super active with that, to share value, to help and support others. I love it. I love learning from the best. Okay, guys, love you. See you. Thanks for listening to this entire podcast. Please rank your experience in Apple, Spotify, Google, or any other platforms that you may use. Also, please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift. We'll see you soon on other valuable audio podcasts.